Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm back with Larry McGrath. He's a researcher at Facebook and has a PhD from Johns Hopkins University in history and anthropology of science, which is something new for the show. So, um, Larry, thanks for, for joining me today. Look forward to talking with you. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. You know, I, I gave a very brief introduction there, but I really like to hear everybody's story from their self. So would you maybe tell us all how, you know, what led you to anthropology, a little bit about the academic background, and then after that, you know, we'll we'll get into some of the more employment stuff. Sure. Well, before I start on my origin story about how I came to anthropology, I should say that I'm here doing this podcast with you because I think that there is a real business need and value to be offered by the critical research skill set that anthropologists in particular, as well as humanists and social scientists generally, uh, can bring to um, the business world. Uh, They can bring it to many worlds, but I work now in the business world, and that's what I'm prepared to talk with you today about. As for my beginnings, I um, decided to pursue a doctorate in the history of science from Johns Hopkins University back in 2008, because it was a time when there was massive interest and investment from both the Obama administration and the European Union in mapping the brain, to do to the brain what had been done to the human genome back in the 1990s. And so I set about writing a dissertation on the history of the brain sciences in Europe, particularly um, in France, because it was my conviction that for these projects to succeed, cultural context needed to be taken into account. That although we have the same organ between our ears called the brain, the way in which it's analyzed, understood, mapped, is dependent on contingent contexts in different places in time. And so I went about writing a um, dissertation on the history of the brain sciences in France. People oftentimes ask me, why France? And there are multiple reasons. One of them converges with the work we do as anthropologists. There's a fundamental assumption that science, technology, life more generally is not the same everywhere, that cultural variance is part of what we're um, interested in understanding. And so there is no universal history of the brain sciences to be written. Um, The second reason is that my skill set is in French. I lived there for a long time. And so that's the linguistic training that I have. And then the third is that there's so many parts of our brain that are named after old uh, dead French people, as well as uh, neurological disorders. Think of Tourette syndrome that was named after Gilles de la Tourette. And so um, the French were really pioneering in advancing the brain sciences and helping us understand the mind-brain problem. I spent some time in academia teaching uh, the history and anthropology of science and eventually um, published a book based on my research. You can find it at University of Chicago Press. It's titled 
Making Spirit Matter, Neurology, Psychology, and Selfhood in Modern France. But after time, I was no longer satisfied with um, the state of American academia. For a few personal and professional reasons, I was teaching at Wesleyan University at the time and had very clever students in my seminars, but I found myself wanting a few things. One was control over where I live. Uh, second was some more money. Uh, academics don't make a whole lot of that. And third was to be able to do research that had a more material um, impact beyond just contributing more articles to journals or chapters to anthologies that would be read by an elite, meaningful, but ultimately narrow audience. So I left. Mm -hmm. I did uh, consulting in the um, medical world, working primarily with companies in biotech, uh, doing research on neurodegenerative disorders. And so it was really meaningful to be able to spend time in hospitals and clinics doing anthropology for the sake of um, pharmaceutical and medical devices. And I ultimately transitioned to Facebook, where I now do um, cultural research and work with a an research team investigating um, forms of value in ads and business um, across different cultures. Again, the assumption there being that um, although plenty of us in the world are plugged into social media and use technology, the way in which we um, use it is not at all the same. And so understanding the role that cultural context plays um, can really bring about value um, for companies, for Facebook, for whom I work. Great. Thanks for that introduction. And, uh, you know, I'll just to sort of build on that, I know you on LinkedIn, which maybe people should check you out and what we could talk about exactly where they can find you later, but you'd share a lot of interesting content that, you know, I think would be relevant for everybody listening. And so what you said in there, I mean, there's a lot to dig into and, you know, I want to be maybe mindful of time, but your, your background again is a little bit different. And, you know, I'm wondering, do you think that particular degree path provides you, you know, and specific, uh, you know, specific sort of value add maybe over some other degree paths? I think there are a lot of degrees that offer entrees into the business world. Anthropology is a great one since there's a premium right now on the observational knowledge of people in their local life worlds that can contribute to product design. When I studied the history of science, there was an anthropological component, spending time in uh, hospitals and neurology clinics in order, in order to understand how those sciences are actually practiced today. There was also an archival component, and that's a skill set that a historian brings, digging through materials that are not only published in journal or book form, but also unpublished in the form of letters, margin notes, library records, um, even material objects. And so I think that a historian who can work among such different media and collect such a wide array of data can contribute a lot to the um, analysis we do uh, in the business world. Just the same, I think that people from 
the literature world, maybe even philosophy or religious studies, who are trained in amassing um, textual knowledge, interpreting it very closely, and then advancing arguments on the basis of that analysis can offer a lot to the business world because I think that the historical moment we live in right now, especially when it comes to tech companies, is that there is a surplus of numerical data, of big data that fills up uh, the cells of spreadsheets, but that data can't explain itself, that we have a surfeit of data and therefore a renewed need for humanists and social scientists to bring that numerical data to bear on people's lives, to test it against real-life experiences. In short, as we oftentimes put it, to bring thick data to complement the big data. And that's where I think uh, multiple disciplines, including but not just anthropology, can contribute to uh, the business world. Great. And so you also said, you know, you were teaching for a bit you chose to move on from that environment for the reasons you mentioned. But did you initially, did you always plan to teach? Was that the goal? Or did you always think that you might end up in business? Business was a complete career 180 move for me. Since I was a high school student, I had constructed a picture of me as a professor. I think when I was a young um, politicized activist. I wanted to be the next Noam Chomsky who would use my um, position to, you know, speak to America's interventions over the world. And it was a rather um, romantic picture that I had, but ultimately was one created in my youth. And when I fulfilled it in my 30s, I realized that it was no longer a picture that I desired as much as I once had. And so I took a big risk. It's a big risk moving on from a PhD um, because we're so habituated to certain institutions that validate our worth, our worth in the form of nuanced arguments, presenting them in front of seminars, conferences, workshops, and the business world was quite unknown. But I think the knowledge and skill set that a PhD has is incredibly useful in the business world. The difficulty sure. is that it's a bit opaque as to how to make that skill set translate into a language understood by hiring managers, um, by teammates in the business world. I offer a career transition consulting services on my website, Larry S. McGrath. I know you do similarly, and I think that there are great resources out there, um, both free and paid, for PhDs to jump into the business world that um, help eliminate some of that risk that I dealt with. Right. So, and we'll link to that, you know, in the show notes for everybody who's listening. Tell me when you were, so, you know, you're, you're consulting on that now, but obviously you had to go through it the first time. So what were some of the challenges that you faced making the transition and did anybody help you along the way? Great question. The challenge that I faced was knowing what's out there. When you're an academic looking for jobs, there's a finite number of job boards that list openings. 
You also have advisors who are skilled in helping you get those jobs and Mm -hmm. packaging your application materials. The business world and the jobs to enter it are so much more decentralized. So much more of it depends on non-meritocratic means, such as networking, Mm -hmm. uh, such as just talking to people and figuring out what's out there. And so my method was to buy about 50 50 coffees for people uh, the summer that I realized that I was sick and tired of academia and just get a lay of the land. And really, that's approaching it much like we would as researchers, doing my own literature review, seeing what the possibilities are, and then narrowing it down from there. Yeah, that's great. And and the coffees, you know, you could also basically say, you know, informational interviews, which is something we generally recommend to people. And so when you were doing that, were you already honed in on UX from your, you know, your own literature review, if you will, or did UX also pop out in your, in your coffee sessions? I knew that I wanted to do research and the challenge that I faced, like many transitioning academics face, is whether what they want to maintain a focus on their specialty or instead pitch their skill sets. Do you want to work with the content knowledge that you've de- developed or transform it into formal skills? And I still wanted to work in the world of the human sciences, neurology, psychology, and their cultural contexts. And I did that for some time in the consulting world. It's not easy for all academics to be able to find that seamless um, transition. Mm-hmm. I no longer um, work um, with neurology and psychology at Facebook so much. It's more um, traditional ethnographic research, understanding normal people in their uh, living context and how they deal with um, technology. Uh, but I think that that's a big question that a lot of academics have to face. I came to UX research only after realizing that there is an incredible demand for research out there. And perhaps this is something that you've spoken about, Matt, on your other podcast, but there is a sort of strange, I think, monopolization of research by UX right now. And it's worth listeners uh, keeping in mind that UX research is one kind of research, and there are other forms of research that inform products, um, strategy, and other business functions that um, anthropologists and social scientists can offer. Sure, and not just other research jobs, and, and I appreciate that probably many anthropologists want to be in research jobs, but there's also lots of other roles that we can contribute to that are very, very meaningful and very important in the in the business environment, Absolutely. such as strategy roles, as you pointed out. So, so you find, you know, you, you end up first in a science, you know, role, so you, you got to play on the content knowledge that you had and the, the research skills. What made you... And that's a nice place to be, obviously. But what made you then make the leap to Facebook where you're giving up some of the work in the sciences? Yeah. uh, Facebook uh, does seek out former academics. And 
you get to work on a wide variety of interesting products. Although Facebook is, at the end of the day, an ads business, they generate a lot of research using um, the 3 billion people or so that they have as potential research participants. And so that was very attractive. There are also numerous investments of Facebook in health, in wearable devices that I think are really exciting in, in virtual reality um, that offer really thrilling opportunities for cutting edge um, research. And most of all, I get to work with a diverse array of psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists, economists, whose skill sets are immense and that I admire. And I think both professionally and personally, it's important to surround the, oneself with um, people you admire. Yeah, it's a great point. So, and it certainly sounds like a nice work environment uh, and, and maybe pointing out one of the benefits of a larger organization over maybe some smaller startups, you know, right? Oftentimes in the smaller startups, we're small team or even a team of one. And so for anybody listening that might have a preference, you know, one, one thing we recently talked about in a uh, AAA webinar was sort of making sure you're finding the right fit for you and not every research role, just because it's UX research or consumer behavior, whatever it may be, not every role is really the right fit. There's organizational concerns, you know, there's mm -hmm. a number of them, uh, even geographic, as you mentioned earlier on. So I think that's, that's a nice point. So, you know, now let's maybe focus on on the work at Facebook a little bit more. So, I forget. Did you start pre-COVID, or did you I transition did start during COVID? Though so much of my research has been in the um, remote work era. Yeah. So I was wondering how much, you know, in well, let me back up and say in tech you know, we might not always get to do as much in context, you know, truly in context. Sometimes we're doing it digitally. So what is, what's your work look like on a sort of daily basis? Are you, and I'll say pre-COVID because obviously we're doing everything virtual right now, but were you doing a lot of really true in context, you know, in the home kind of studies or? Yes, that's right. In the before times, it meant spending time in people's homes going shopping with them, spending time in people's workplaces, hanging out in front of a mall, for example, and doing flyby recruiting, getting people to spend five minutes with me, hanging out, say, in front of a municipal building to get a different context and a community of people involved in the study. All of these different life worlds. And it is far more challenging to capture that richness of context the naturalness of behavior that an anthropology would typically find in people's um, worlds and in, in, in field work. And we try to recreate that using remote methods of interviews, focus groups. I love using diary studies. Um, but ultimately, the um, richness of the field is only partial. Um, as we capture it through any of those remote media. Yeah. And so how have you made that transition? Um, you know, it's one thing I actually, I haven't really talked about yet on the podcast, but what, what maybe have you learned from 
going fully virtual and what are maybe some of the challenges and any tips for anybody that's listening that might themselves already be working in UX? It's a really great question. I don't think there's any clear-cut answer. It's an ongoing project for me mm-hmm. to build the rapport, to be able to tailor my questions and prompts, to be able to account for not just interview subjects' attitudes, but also their behaviors, which we as anthropologists are geared to observe. I mean, a fundamental assumption, as everyone knows, of ethnographic research is that there is a gap between attitude and behavior, and it's so difficult to capture the latter via um video conference like this. I mean, you only see from my chest up right now, you barely have a sense of context. And so it's really important, I've found when doing remote work to ask questions about that context. Where are you in the home? Is this where you work? Is this where you play? What is the last thing that you did here? Um, where did you, where in the home did you come from before being here to get a sense of the, the transitions? Um, I did work for Facebook in early COVID that I published as a medium article trying to understand how people use technology and social media to introduce structure into the home as an alternative to the external structures on which we normally uh, rely. We usually would organize our day pre-COVID around commutes, lunches, uh, gym visits. If you have kids, then daycare, maybe out, um, uh, happy hours. These were the sort of pillars that would make for pivot points in our day. And now we find uh, that it's all on our own resources to create that organization and fragment the day into chunks. Perhaps we transition mm-hmm. from the table to the couch, from the big, serious laptop screen to the small, fun, playful uh, mobile phone screen. And so this is one way in which I think um, remote research skills can uh, capture some of that uh, context and behavior that we would otherwise normally get by being physically present in the field. Yeah, I like the pivot point concept. That's great. And, you know, I'm wondering, is there anything that you're actually finding to be a benefit from all of this? You know, are you, do you have greater reach than you might have otherwise? And is that providing any benefit? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a dual edged sword. On the one hand, I found that recruiting um, works quite well right now, Um, but that's Mm -hmm. symptomatic of all the awful things that have happened during COVID. For example, more people are being laid off. So they need the extra money and they'll do a Facebook study. Um, It's less likely, for example, that we get drop-offs because people are at home. Well, that's because they aren't going out and doing other things. And so as a result of people's difficult situations, it is easier to get participants into research, into remote research sessions. But I do wonder, I wonder about the future of ethnographic research in the corporate world post-COVID once we're all vaccinated. In the immediate term, I wonder even when boundaries between countries open up and travel returns, 
who's going to be open to welcoming strangers into an intimate space. Mm-hmm. That's going to be difficult. I also wonder about it from a corporate finance perspective that now that so many companies have been able to operate lean, saving money on travel, doing less field work, will they use the, will they use COVID as a shock doctrine to make these conditions more permanent and say, look, we produce good research with remote tools. Why do we need to spend that money sending ethnographers out into the field. I really hope that's not the case, um, but it has been before with other crises like the 2008 financial um, downturn. The jury's still out to see how um, businesses uh, react post-COVID. Yeah, sure. And you know, besides that, even just coming back to the office, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Facebook has said that at least some larger portion will be able to work remotely. Um, and so that's even also obviously a factor that's playing in, you know, at least for you, but for many of us. Right. And on that point, you know, how maybe, um, might be interesting to hear, you know, obviously Facebook has a, a pretty sizable research team. And so how has the dynamic changed as a team of researchers, um, and your interactions, you know, as a result of COVID and how are you all kind of handling that? And maybe one, one, uh, you know, one question leading up to that, are, are you an embedded model or are you all centralized? You know, are, are you embedded in a specific product team or? Sure. Um, it, look, COVID, COVID is a huge blow to team dynamics. There's so much more intention and coordination required now to meet as a team. There's so much less serendipity and uh, water cooler chat, as it were. But that echoes the general world in which we live in. The COVID era is a time of coordination and planning. There's such little chance in our social encounters anymore. I live in New York City. I long for the times that my friends would call me late night on Friday and say, hey, I'm on the Lower East Side, and I tell them I'm on the Upper West Side, and oh, we'll encounter at some point. doesn't happen anymore. Everything is planned um, and reserved in advance, and that happens in a, in a micro form at the office. Um, when it comes to Facebook's model, our research division is enormous. I think it's about 550 people right now, and it's both embedded and not. Most product teams do have one to three researchers who do evaluative research. That is, they test the design of the product and make sure it's it's good to go live. I don't do that. I'm on a separate research team, what we call an ecosystem research team. Um, in other businesses, it's sometimes called foundational or exploratory research. And the questions that I tackle are questions of value, especially non-monetary value, Um, What value do people um, get out of privacy? For example, Facebook's undergone a uh, immense initiative to craft better privacy products for people. And, you know, it's, I think, a very important question, especially in a social media world where people value the concept of privacy, yet their actions are oftentimes out of sync um, with that, given that they want to share so much of their 
um, life online. So what, what value does privacy have um, for people is a question that we, uh, that my team examines independently so that we can bring understanding and insights um, back to um, a variety of teams at Facebook. Got it. So your work in particular, you know, the more sort of generative work that you're doing is very ripe for the application of social theory and understanding of privacy as a social construct that really differs across, you know, the 3 billion plus user base, yes. you know, and as opposed to some evaluative type work where, you know, some relatively simple observation can really address sort of 80% of the problems without having to sort of couch it all in, in theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, unlike some roles, you, you presumably get to, to really uh, pull in a bit more from our toolkit. And so can you maybe speak a little bit about that? You know, how does theory play in your, in your work particularly, and, and how is that received within the organization? Absolutely. Um, I was trained in some of the rarefied bastions of social theory in America, first in the rhetoric department at University of California, Berkeley, where I was advised by Judith Butler, a, uh, a gender theorist, um, and then at and then at Johns Hopkins, um, which is a which is a place where French post-structuralist theory had a enduring impact. It was the first American institution where Jacques Derrida presented, for example, back in the 1960s, and those theoretical toolkits have always been very important. Um, they've informed the research that I've done in academia and in business. When it comes to business, it's up to us as people who have those skill sets to translate them into terms that are adapted to our audiences. Because as we know, those, um, those critical tools are oftentimes uh, written in a jargon that's a bit esoteric for others. And that's why I love them, of course, and I can uh, speak theory to others. But what it's, what it's helped me appreciate, first and foremost, in my work with human participants doing human research, is that humans are riven. We're torn through and through. That if you look at the bottom of what we are, you won't find identity. You won't find sameness. You find us pulled in multiple directions. That humans aren't just one thing. And I think that's very important when doing research and accounting for the different aspects of ourselves. The conflicts between attitudes and behaviors, the way we change over time the way we um, segment social groups, that if you keep in mind that humans aren't one thing, then research results that show, for example, how people hate the idea of ads in general, yet actually quite like particular ads that they see, no longer appear as contradictions, but very normal aspects of our conflicted life. That coming to terms with what satisfies us personally and what we think is good socially, for example, there are disconnects all over the place. And accounting for these things is what my um, theoretical 
uh, toolkit has helped with. And those are always research insights that I try to deliver to my teams and the wider Facebook organization is to show how people are um, pulled in multiple directions and how we might better design products that account for the um, multifaceted nature of humans. So that's no easy task. You know, that's that's very different than, you know, a, a relatively small UI tweak just to, you know, increase some kind of click-through rate. So how do you go about that difficult task of getting others to understand your insights? You know, what what has worked for you uh, given the complexity of, of the content um, and almost like, you know, sort of a, it's, you know, it's, a, you know, something like value in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. You know, value is a, something that is a construct that, you know, can be defined many ways by many different people. Mm-hmm. I imagine when using that term, Frequently, you know, even internally, there's just a lot of uh, misunderstanding about maybe what you mean by it, you know, unless you're making sure to to really operationalize it well. So how, you know, what what do you do to overcome the kind of problems that you have in your particular type of space? Sure. Most people interpret value as dollars, cents, shekels. Yeah. Uh, value is not, mon- not not always monetary, of course. What makes for a rich experience, what makes for user satisfaction, brings them value. It uh, makes them recurrent users, and that ultimately um, impacts ROI, just not in an immediately monetary sense. One advantage of working at a large organization like Facebook is that the case for more experimental research doesn't need to be made as aggressively as it would be in a smaller organization with less resources. Mm-hmm. At Facebook, we can take on um, marginal product, marginal research endeavors that might be peripheral to um, the company's focus because we have the means sure. to take risks and make mistakes. Um, But when it comes to doing value research and communicating to others that humans are conflicted, as I mentioned before, and that we need to design products that account for our contradictory sides, I research what people are already doing, as we call it, researching for latent behaviors. How are people using our products in ways that we might not have already known about? Oftentimes, UX research is used in order to help refine products or identify new products. It's important, I think, to use UX research to understand why you might not want a new product at all, why the current one is perfectly good, and why adding new whistles and bells is just going to make the situation worse. In other words, there's a sort of quietist approach to some of my uh, research to help allay product developers or marketers or engineers fears that we need to add a new button, that we need to generate a new product, when in fact people are fully satisfied with what they're doing right now. They just use workarounds and behaviors that we don't have metrics for and weren't able to measure, and that's what an ethnographer can help reveal for the sake of others. Yeah, great. And in your particular case, um, are you also, when you 
have an insight that you think needs maybe some product change, whether that's new product, you know, addition to the product, whatever it may be, are you also making recommendations or are you stopping at insights and, and turning that over to another team and then they're running with it? My insights tend to be more strategic. Let's focus on, for example, um, increasing more seamless experiences um, instead of asking people for consent at every stop of the way because that's going to annoy them. That's one example. Um, so and when it comes to designing specific products, uh, no, my, my recommendations don't take that specific a form. They do, however, my recommendations that is oftentimes persuade people about opportunities to harmonize and eliminate products. When you work at a large organization, especially where research and product development can get siloed, teams work independently from one another without the coordination that's needed in order to generate a coherent experience. And so when it comes to Facebook, there's just so many tools available within the um, Facebook world that when you log in, identifying opportunities to harmonize them, to bring them together, potentially to um, eliminate some of them, I think is a uh, meaningful output of UX research for helping create a more seamless experience for users. Sure. Now, there's also another problem in there which comes up quite a bit, which is not just harmonizing it in the way you described it, but also really among researchers that are spread out across product teams, or in your case, you know, in your own, in, you know, in this sort of ecosystems world versus, you know, those doing the evaluative research. And so, and if, you know, I'm not sure if you can talk about this or not, this might be too specific to Facebook, but are you doing anything to make sure that all researchers understand the findings and and the insights ultimately, and that you know, like any kind of systems in place to help for knowledge management, organizational memory, anything in that space. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm in dialogue with researchers constantly. The risk of research at a large organization is always duplication. If you're just one of a few researchers at a large organization, you never encounter that risk. So much of what you do at a small company is done for the first time. This is where my historical training kicks in, and I think it's a worthwhile um, it's something worth it's something worth keeping in mind that as a historian, I tend to think that there's very little that's new in the world. My general assumption is that if you have a thought, if you've done something, it's probably been thought or done before. And so it's important to understand precedent. I know the word unprecedented we hear everywhere these days. Um, my general assumption is that most things are, in fact, precedented. And so it's important to understand what was done in the past. And that usually is the first step of good research, doing a literature review, understanding what the company has archived, what the institutional memory is. And that's not just going to a central database 
it's also communicating with people. And at a company as big as Facebook, a large chunk of what I do is just reaching out to other people and doing internal research, understanding who might be interested in a product, who's done work on it um, before, and gathering knowledge that way. Not just in order to identify a gap in the literature, as it were, because not every single project that we has to that we do has to be entirely unique. You can, for example, verify past research, see if anything has changed, but. Ultimately, the purpose is to set your research in relation to what others have done and establishing those references, that context within your organization's research community is what makes other people, one, want to read it, um, and two, more impactful. Yeah, great. And also just helps, you know, with the team, right? It's, totally. it's just good for team dynamics. So, you know, in your work, you said earlier that the ROI is not immediate, or at least the recognition of that ROI is, is certainly not immediate. So how do you, you know, many of us like to see that, you know, our work, that the output of our work turns into something. So how do you go about sort of just gauging your own value as a researcher um, and understanding sort of how you're performing? Good question. When I worked in smaller organizations, especially in the, I mean, in the consulting world, the impact was very clear. I would deliver a report to clients. They would express they were, whether they were satisfied or dissatisfied. I would call them up in six months and ask, how has this impacted your team strategy? Have, where are your sales right now? Where is the new product in the um, development pipeline? The risk of research at a larger organization is that our output might dissipate into the ether. And it mm -hmm. is quite uh, challenging to follow up and see the impacts. I think one way that you can evaluate impacts is understanding the language that people use. Are people adopting terms that you proposed in your research? Sure. Even better, are people using frameworks that you proposed in your research? Good UX research, especially exploratory research, doesn't just make suggestions. We need, for example, a new product that accounts for um, privacy of, for, for children, that when uh, children who are being photographed uh, by their parents today in 10 years gave a sense of self. What are they going to do with it? Okay, that's a nice product recommendation. Um, good UX research also generates frameworks for helping people think through questions like privacy. How do we reconcile, for example, the gaps between attitudes and beliefs about people's social understanding of privacy versus what they personally want? And to answer your question, I think an indicator of success is whether people, others at the company, especially senior leadership of the company, are drawing on those frameworks when making decisions. That's great. Do you have any thoughts on... Um, so, you know, obviously, if, if they're using those frameworks... Uh, if you see your research as being used, that's a good way to, to maybe gauge your value. But do you also 
think that there's anything we can do to increase, you know, our visibility as a, as a brand to, you know, get more influence to get a seat at the table, any way you want to frame it. Um, Cause sometimes even though, you, you know, you still might produce, you know, some good findings, a framework, whatever it may be that has legs and, and can be used, but it's still it's not adopted. So what do you think we all can be doing to really improve our, our influence? Super important question, because the reality is that at a lot of organizations, research has a um, plays a peripheral role within um, within the within uh, the structure of the organization. And so, in order to increase our influence, I think that we shift away from a model that is so driven by pain points. I think a lot of uh, people, especially at tech organizations, see research as a bunch of naysayers. Users have this problem. How do we solve for this problem? Your new product creates so much friction and disappointment. How do we solve for that? Of course, we need to address users' pain points. But engineers aren't very excited to hear about how their new product just frustrates people, especially when those engineers think that they have such a brilliant and novel idea. So it's much like when giving criticism generally. Any man, any good manager knows this. You've got to package criticism with support as well. You've got to pat it with what people are doing well and not just how they're screwing up. And so I think as researchers, it's important to balance our recommendations for solving pain points alongside highlights of what a product is doing already well. And using those two um, in tandem to show how um, product specifications can be better emphasized to um, solve for user pain points, to, to bring to light, as I was suggesting earlier, um, latent behaviors, workarounds, um, aspects of users' interactions with our products that are going really well and that the organization might not have been aware of before. So, in short, I'm suggesting that one way for user research to have a better, a more impactful seat at the table is to also bring good news. And yeah, no, that's that's something we oftentimes forget, right? And it's mm -hmm. uh, sort of one on one, really, in terms of just human dynamics. Totally. No, nobody so maybe, wants you just to be a naysayer the whole time. Sure. And so, on that point, and to maybe kind of connect it back you know, to your degree of history and anthropology of science, you know, one of the things that we, you know, I mean, that's not where I have focused. So correct me if I'm wrong, but there, there's a tendency in the sort of engineering space, if you will. And I, you know, come from an IT background to really focus on the solution as like the sort of the means, it's almost the end goal in and of itself. A lot of times, like the sort of how we do something is sort of super important for many in that space, of course, not all. Um, whereas we're often kind of bringing in the why. So do you see like, you know, both in your studies of science as a discipline and in your work, like a focus on solutionism and how might like you bringing in like the why something, the reason why something is happening, maybe help combat that a little. And does that have, does that change the dynamic in the way you, you get people to a, 
to adopt the the insights and findings? Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking through, I'm just thinking through an answer right here. Uh, the, the, the sol- solutions versus answers to why questions. Um, I think that one way of looking at this is that at tech companies, people generally, engineers in particular, researchers too, oftentimes think that this is the only uh, app or piece of tech that users use. And so just getting, just getting your colleagues to see what people are doing on Google, on YouTube, on Wikipedia, wherever else, mm-hmm. I think is a really meaningful contextual insight that researchers can provide. Just getting your colleagues to um, take the blinders off, as it were, to uh, see more than just the water for the fish. A lot of my research is comparative in that sense, um, spending time with users on Facebook, on Instagram, but then on other um, interfaces where data are exchanged. Of course, online, such as Amazon and Google, but those aren't the only places where people exchange data. We give our um, address and phone number, for example, at the grocery store when getting loyalty benefits or when going to hospitals in order to get personalized medical care, um, when going to a bank, for example. And so helping people realize that um, practices oftentimes thought to be particular to your own organization are in fact widespread, that comparative understanding, I think, can help uh, researchers get others to see why the why answers work alongside the solutions. Great. Thanks for that. And uh, yeah, the comparativeness is, you know, it's it's one of our value adds. So it's, it's always worth reminding. And again, one of the reasons that anthropology is really great for this role. And so for anybody who, you know, maybe wants to use their sort of multi, multiple sort of perspective and, and comparative skills and really transition into this field, is there anything that you would recommend, you know, anything specific, um, any upskilling, anything specific about a resume or a portfolio, anything that you've learned along the way that you think others should know? Great question. We already talked about the value of chatting with as many people as possible, doing informational interviews. When it comes to people like myself and the clients whom I consult moving from academia to industry, I generally don't believe that more schooling is needed. Unfortunately, so many academic advisors could only suggest more schooling because that is the um, atmosphere in which they breathe. Degrees, courses, um, more education. I think that Plenty of academics should think of the work that they've already done as UX projects. For example, plenty of academics have designed syllabi, have taught courses over a semester, maybe a year long, have iterated on their teaching methods, on their evaluation methods, whether it's the length and number of essays that they assign or their choice to include tests as well, 
maybe the media that have been included in the class beyond um, texts to also, you know, video or whatever other artifacts. There's a lot of product design that goes into creating a good course in the academic world. And I would encourage um, those who are considering transitioning out of it to reflect on their own teaching experience as if it were a product and their research on making that course better as UX research. I think it's similar to the case for um, our academic output. When writing a dissertation, for example, there are multiple stakeholders that one has to satisfy. One's immediate committee. One also has to speak to um, your broader discipline. And then when applying for academic jobs, you might speak to people who have zero interest in your domain. As a historian of scientist, I was oftentimes pitching my work to um, sociologists, to scholars of, um, you know, Egyptology, perhaps. We're always translating our work. Doing so for the sake of a corporate job is just one step further in that translation process, a process that I'm suggesting is a lot like what we do in UX research. Um, and so that's why I think that a lot of academics in anthropology and other humanities and social science disciplines have the skill sets already. They just need to reflect on and use the language to make those skill sets understood by peers in the business world. Yeah, great, great advice. Very practical. You know, it's, it's really all about reframing it. They have the skills, they have the knowledge, they have the projects. And I really like the syllabus example. It's funny. I was on a teaching as a guest on a teaching podcast a few days ago, and I actually suggested, you know, iterating on your, your syllabi as a recommendation, mm. treating it like a UX project. So Funny to hear you say that today. So um, great. I think that's that's perfect. And, you know, in terms of reframing experience, obviously you help with that. So do you want to maybe, again, mention, you know, your website and, and where people could find you and, you know, some of the services that you offer and anything else you wish to maybe bring up? Absolutely. Um, I do offer career transition uh, consulting services. You can check it out on my website, LarrySMcGrath.com. We'll talk about, um, for example, what opportunities are out there depending on your discipline. I cater, as you can tell from this podcast so far, to people from the humanities and social sciences. Help um, create a portfolio, a LinkedIn page that gets people to dwell for longer, and then to package your work into a lexicon that is understood and persuasive um, for other people. I've helped a number of clients get jobs at organizations like Lowe's, Bressler Group, um, plenty of research and consulting um, institutions. I have a lot of fun doing it. Great. Well, Larry, thanks for that. Um, anything else? Anything? Any other projects? Anything outside of, of that that you're interested in that you think is worth bringing up? I think that it's um, really important for academics to test their value beyond the academic world. I think right now, with the pandemic and the elimination of a lot of academic jobs out there, 
people are being forced to go into the business world in order to see what's out there as an alternative. I want to encourage people to see that as an opportunity as well. And I see there as being, I have a bit of a political mission to help humanities and social science doctorate holders to realize their value outside of the academic world so that when we're all vaccinated and life is better, that academic institutions can no longer justify the meager wages given to their instructors, as well as the wage stagnation that we encounter right now on the tenure track. And there are a number of structural dimensions that need to be addressed. But as an, at an individual level, I think that um, academics have the power to demonstrate that their value is much greater in the business world. And if there are far there's a smaller pool, ultimately, of desperate instructors who are willing to agree to the meager salaries um, that colleges and universities offer, well, then it's going to be a whole lot harder for them to offer those salaries. And so that's, uh, that's my mission in doing this. Very cool. Good mission. Thanks for the work you're doing. And thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thanks. Thank Take you care. all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotous.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.